I did manage to produce a son with long, curly red hair and freckles. I might be your son by the sound of things. <laughs> too many freckles and too much red hair. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to Omega. To Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 34th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 13th of July 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is a week late, due to the birth of my new baby boy, Sean Sonny Omar Jeffers O'Brien. This show is dedicated to the wee man, and his lovely mother, Precious, and a very generous sponsor, Mary F. Thanks, Sean, Sonny Omar, Precious, and Mary F. If you'd like to hear your name read aloud at the beginning of a show, why not click on the donate button on the podcast website, or alternatively, sire me another child. This week, we are joined by Nicole Foss, of the Automatic Earth blog. Before being a renowned blogger on energy and finance, Nicole was a research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, where she specialised in nuclear safety in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union and conducted research into electricity policy at the EU level. Nicole has just finished a long speaking tour of the Antipodes and joins us from Holland to give us the lowdown on the worlds of energy and finance. We discuss the likely future role of fracking and tar sands oil production, hyperinflation and hyperdeflation, the coming economic difficulties we are all likely to face in the coming decades, and the prospects of a return to fascism in the West. So, Nicole, I was wondering how you ended up being a financial blogger and peak oil activist. Well, it's it's a long story. I, I was working at uh, the oil drum and writing about peak oil. And I'd been wanting to write more about finance. So I was starting to write more about that online at the oil drum. But they didn't particularly want to cover too many topics there. So uh, my writing partner and I set up on our own. But it just came out of the work that we'd been doing, the research we'd been doing. And because we started in early 2008 our our own website and we were predicting the financial crisis and everything turned out exactly the way we'd said it would, we developed an enormous readership. And then I started traveling around because people asked me to come and talk to them. And uh, the rest is history. I've been doing that for three and a half years now. What was your background before you were writing in the oil drum? Again, a long story. I was a biologist originally, so I have two science degrees in biology and environmental science. And then uh, I have two law degrees as well. Was one of my biology professors said, if you want to understand the problems of the world, study biology. If you want to do something about it, study something else. So I did biology and law. And then I'd been working in energy, uh, both in science and in, in law. I'd been writing about the, the environmental effects of, of energy production and also regulation of energy systems. So I'd moved into energy and then I moved into figuring out finance because 
I thought, I can't say I understand how the world works if I don't understand money. So some 20 years ago, I decided that I needed to do that. So I've been doing that ever since. But really what I do now is pull it all together. That's the, the point, to look at the biggest possible big picture. So what is it in particular about peak oil that motivated you to set up the automatic earth? Well, it wasn't just peak oil. It was more a question of uh, peak everything, to quote Richard Heinberg. It was a question of looking at limits to growth across the board because I'd, I already had a substantial environmental background and knew all about limits to growth in environmental terms. And, and resource limits is, is clearly part of that. Carrying capacity is another part of it. So I was coming at it from that physical limits to growth uh, approach and then realized some 20 years ago that we were also approaching uh, financial limits. And so the, the whole idea was just to, to pull everything together to say, what is the biggest possible big picture? Because there are so many aspects which are going to prove to be limiting over, over the next while. And I just wanted to get to grips with as many of them as I possibly could. What is it about energy in particular, do you think that's so crucial? Energy is the capacity to do work. It's, it's absolutely fundamental to everything that we do. And we don't realize, we completely take our energy supply for granted. We don't realize just how abnormal our current situation is because of the access to cheap energy that, that we've had. That, that is so fundamental. And really, since the Industrial Revolution, we've had more and more and more energy. No species before us has simply found an enormous supply of readily usable energy. We did. That makes us absolutely unique. And if you look at what's happened since we discovered fossil fuels, the enormous hockey stick curves we've seen in so many areas, that really is where, where we've, we've taken off and why we're hitting so many other limits because the cheap energy that we had enabled us to do so many more things, enabled us to use and access and use so many more resources that we then burned through not only the energy but also used up the accessible supplies of almost everything else while we expanded our population just enormously in a very short space of time. So energy was the, the driver for all of that. It was the major driver of expansion and socioeconomic complexity that allowed us to reach heights greater than any empire in history ever did. Without the supply of cheap fossil fuels, you would be looking at something like Rome as about the most that anyone could achieve, you know, achieve roughly on a solar budget with uh, some ability to store energy in the form of grain or firewood. But then you'd be looking at, uh, at conquering territories and harnessing slaves and stealing surpluses all the way they, they, they did it in the ancient world. And without fossil fuels, that would have been about the most any empire could have achieved. With fossil fuels, we've built this incredible technological civilization. And now the fact that we're going to have a lot less cheap energy is going to have huge knock-on effects. And finance is interesting because it's the first hurdle we hit, but it's by no means the most fundamental. Energy is going to be the most fundamental difference over the next, the next few decades. And that is going to really determine what we're capable of doing as a society. I was wondering if you could talk about the concept energy returned on energy invested, that's E-R-O-E-I, and what it means for our future energy lives. Well, energy to return on energy invested or the energy profit ratio is absolutely critical because 
you, you have to have an energy surplus. In other words, you can't put more energy in than you, than you get out, or even the same amount. If you're going to use something as an energy source, you have to get substantially more out than you put in for it to be worth the effort. Now, in the early days of the oil industry, you would get back about 100 units of energy for every one that you invested. So the energy profit ratio was absolutely staggering in comparison to anything anyone had ever seen before. Globally, with conventional fossil fuels, we're now down to about 15 to 1. Depends on, on which energy source you're looking at. But for conventional fossil fuels, you're looking at somewhere around 10 to 1, 15 to 1, or something along those lines. But when you look at how fast that's falling because of the depletion rate for those conventional sources, and then you start looking at the things people are talking about as alternatives, then it becomes quite obvious that we, we have a problem. Because all the alternatives have a drastically lower energy profit ratio, perhaps on average a, a tenth of the amount that you would get from conventional fossil fuels at the moment, although again, it varies enormously. But if your energy profit ratio falls by a factor of 10, you would have to increase gross production by a factor of 10 just to have the same amount of energy available to run society's purposes as you had before. But the problem is production is not growing. It's flat to falling. And at the same time, we're set to move into much, much lower energy profit ratio energy sources. That is a huge problem. You cannot run the kind of society that we are used to having on low energy profit ratio energy sources. Every society will have a minimum energy profit ratio that it requires to be able to maintain its existing level of socioeconomic complexity. And all these unconventional sources and alternative forms of energy are well below that limit for our society, which means our society would have to change in order to accommodate living on lower energy profit ratio energy sources. But the kicker, the, the real paradox, is that if you look at how much complexity is involved in producing all these low energy profit ratio energy sources, you end up looking at a situation where you won't be able to produce these because these sources, these low energy profit ratio energy sources, cannot sustain a level of socioeconomic complexity that is required to produce them, which means that they're not an energy source for us now. They're only an extension of the conventional fossil fuels that we currently throw at producing these unconventional sources. So they're not, they're not an energy source for us now, nor will they be an energy source for us in the future when we're living in a simpler society that's no longer capable of fracking and horizontal drilling and producing rebar and mining rare earth metals and things like that. I've seen one of your graphs where you show gross future oil production with the net production on top when we take account for all the energy that's been put in to try and get it out. And the result is a very, very sharp, startling drop in the net oil production in quite the near future. 
Uh, yes, except it doesn't include financial crisis. So I agree that with the general shape of that graph, that is a, an accurate representation of energy descent if all else stayed the same. But all else is not going to stay the same because we're moving into an era of acute financial crisis. What that will do is push the graph over to the right. So instead of that energy descent happening right now, financial crisis will buy us some time. Because if you look at, at places that are in financial crisis now, the economy is taking an enormous hit. Unemployment is spiking. And what's going to happen in these places is there's going to be a lot less energy burned because there's a lot less economic activity. So for a while, it won't be energy that will be the limiting factor. It will be money because demand is not what people want. Demand is what people can pay for. And if there's no money in the system because we're in the middle of a massive financial crisis and economic depression, people won't be able to afford the energy that they're used to. They will end up using less necessarily, and so that will it will take the pressure off the energy supply and supply of other resources as well, and lead us into a scenario where money will be the limiting factor for quite a while. However, when the economy tries to recover, we'll be moving back into a period where energy will be the limiting factor again, and we're going to hit a hard ceiling at a much lower level of energy supply. A few months ago, George Monbiot came out with an article in for The Guardian proclaiming that he thought peak oil was no longer a worry and that the real problem was climate change. You, you wrote a critique of that article. One of his comments was, as far as EROI being a constraint, try telling that to the tar sands producers in Alberta. What do you see as the actual day-to-day -day impacts of a falling EROEI that would prevent these tar sands from being exploited? The tar sands are not exploited because they produce energy. They're exploited because they produce money. And this is true of a lot of unconventional energy supplies. If you look at shale gas and shale oil and oil shale, there's, there's a small amount of energy. However, the energy profit ratio is terrible. So there's not much net energy that's being produced, but there is a lot of money being produced. Some people are making an enormous fortune by doing this. If you can convince someone, if you can generate enough hype that you can convince people that there's a tremendous resource waiting to be exploited, you can get them to give you money today in order to exploit that resource, and then you've made your money up front, whether that resource turns out to be a complete mirage or not. It's a very good deal if you're in the, in the business of selling snake oil, which is essentially what these unconventional energy sources are. Yes, there is a certain amount of energy that is produced at hideous environmental cost and at also huge energy cost. If you look at tar sands, they're putting the output of whole gas fields into producing syncrude. So what this is, is not a, a production of a lot of energy. There is a certain amount of energy, but mostly you're just engaging in an arbitrage between cheap natural gas in and expensive sin crude out at the other end. So somebody is making a killing financially off this. Now, the interesting thing for North America and for the tar sands in particular is that the hype over the shale gas bubble has already crashed gas prices to the point where they're about a third of break-even for, for shale gas production. This is on the verge of putting gas companies out of business. We've already seen a bottom in the gas market. 
gas prices are going to go up and go up very sharply. At the same time, oil prices are going to fall because the same uh, hype machinery that we got into gear over shale gas is now getting into gear over shale oil. That same perception of glut that crashed gas prices temporarily is now going to be crashing oil prices. So that arbitrage won't work anymore. Instead of cheap gas in and expensive oil out, it'll be expensive gas in and cheap oil out at the other end. No one will make any money at it and it'll put the whole thing out of business. So you have to understand finance in order to understand how things play out in practice in relation to energy. And it's so critical to integrate the two factors, but very, very few people actually do. We were doing this at the Automatic Earth in, in 2008 when we set up. We were talking about, at, at the point where oil prices were reaching towards $147 a barrel, we were telling people the oil price is going to crash because this is a bubble, this is a speculative episode, prices have got ahead of what the fundamentals would justify. That means people are going to bid prices up and then crash them. And at the time when we were writing uh, at the oil drum, this was not a, a welcome opinion for us to come up with because people thought that meant we didn't believe in peak oil. And we were saying, no, 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 we do. But you have to understand how peak oil works in the context of finance. And in the context of finance, you can clearly see this as a speculative bubble and it's going to burst. And that's exactly what happened. Oil prices fell by by something like 80% in a matter of months and it had nothing to do with supply or demand for oil. It was simply to do with the bursting of a speculative episode. So when we look at the unconventional supplies, we can quite clearly see the speculative impetus behind shale gas and now behind shale oil and even worse, oil shale. I should make it clear that oil shale and shale oil are not the same thing. Uh, shale oil is at least a liquid and it will at least give you a five-year oil boom in North Dakota. It won't give you a whole lot of net energy, but it will give you something. But oil shale isn't even a liquid. It's only kerogen. You have to finish cooking it before you can actually extract it as a liquid, which means that the energy returned on energy invested is less than one. It means you have to put more energy in than you get out at the other end. But if you look at the forecasts of the US being the next Saudi Arabia, they're all based on oil shale. It's an absolute fantasy. Unfortunately, George Monbiot has completely bought into this fantasy because for him, climate change is the only real issue. He's just bought this, this propaganda that the oil companies are putting out because they're trying to make a lot of money. He's bought into that and he's now helping to propagate absolute myths. I was wondering if you saw a recent post by Professor Ugo Bardi, which shows that the US natural gas production might already be declining as the shale gas is not compensating enough for the drop in conventional natural gas production. Oh, I completely agree. And it's interesting, if you look at the rig count, which is a leading indicator of production, the rig count is shifting from shale gas to shale oil. And this is a really an acknowledgement by the insiders in the shale gas industry that the game is over, that they, they've wrung as much profit as they could out of their mirage, and now they're going to try the same thing again with, with oil. But if you look at what's going on, the, the gas prices were so low, they crashed production, 
Now, the real estate bubble that they generated, the flipping land leases, which is where they were actually making money, that's essentially over as well, because people are waking up to the fact that there really isn't much gas production. The depletion rates are sky high. The drilling has to continue constantly. And you keep drilling and drilling and drilling an awful lot of dry holes. That's why the net energy is so low. You keep doing this even when you find gas, it depletes incredibly quickly. So you've got to do it again and again and again. People are waking up to the fact that this is nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. So yes, gas production is going to fall. The fact that Rig County shifting it has been telling us this for a year now. I wrote about this a, a year ago uh, in relation to shale gas in, in the United States, saying that this is, this is shifting away. We are not going to see this gas boom. And yes, Ugo Bardi is completely right. When the US talks about becoming a, a gas exporter, taking all those LNG terminals that they were planning to originally build to import LNG, turning them into export terminals because suddenly they were going to be this massive gas power. It was an absolute fantasy. And it was pointed out at the time over the last several years that this was a fantasy. But people were too busy thinking there was a lot of money to be made. And so it went ahead anyway. Now it's proven to be an enormous conversion of capital to waste. So a, a malinvestment based on distortions of prices. And that's what finance really does to, to all sorts of sectors of the real economy. The impulses in finance, the boom and bust dynamic that you build into anything that you overly financialize has the potential to absolutely trash sectors of the real economy. And that's exactly what we're seeing in gas and we're going to see it in oil over the next few years. What do you think explains the lack of acceptance of peak oil amongst the economics profession? Is it just a lack of basic understanding of thermodynamics and physics? Oh, yes. <laughs> Certainly, there is that complete lack of understanding. That, that is, is absolutely critical. They don't understand resource limits. So they, they just think that if you throw enough money at something, then... You know, it's really not a problem. Throw enough money at it and supply will magically increase. They don't understand that there are real physical limits to the kind of resources that are available. And I, I think they, they absolutely critically need to understand that. So that's, that's the first thing they don't understand. They also don't understand that financial bubbles bring demand forward at the expense of crashing it later on. So they have a fundamentally flawed understanding of both the physics of energy, but also an understanding as to how finance works. Economists tend to think in terms of negative feedback loops and equilibrium and everything being related to supply and demand. Their, their model doesn't include money or banking or debt. It includes such nonsensical concepts as perfect information and perfect competition and rational utility maximization and efficient markets. None of those things have a basis in reality. So the model economists are working with is absolutely flawed. What's, what's strange is that it seems like the statesmen of the world's most powerful countries, they understand the importance of energy in world affairs. Well, oil is liquid hegemonic power. They understand that but they don't necessarily understand the industry. And there's a lot of denial that we are in fact facing limits. Nobody wants to think that they're facing real limits to their power and their freedom. But that's exactly what an energy limit implies. 
if you have less energy along with less money as well but if you have less energy it, it is a tremendous constraint to what you can do nobody wants to admit that there are constraints so they're in denial about the fact that those constraints exist but also they are prepared to fight to the death over whatever supplies are left because they know perfectly well that oil is liquid hegemonic power and if they don't uh, secure a share of it somebody else will and then their relative position in the in the world power hierarchy will change significantly for the worse so I can completely see where the denial comes from and also the willingness to justify conflict over supplies as well I was lying in a burned out basement with a full moon in my eye I was hoping for replacement when the sun burst through the sky there was a band playing in my head and I felt like getting So before we get into discussing the economic system and inflation and deflation, I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners the different types of money and how they work. So credit money and government created fiat money. <laughs> well, essentially, I think what we need to look at is what counts as money. So that's, that's the critical point, that during periods of expansion, during our long cycles of expansion that we've experienced so many times before, we try to increase the money supply because money really determines what kind of level of economic activity can be sustained. The supply of money and the rate at which money circulates in the economy determine the amount of economic activity you can sustain. So when people are trying to expand the economy, one of the ways they do this is they expand what counts as money in order to have a larger supply of money that in turn allows them to support a higher level of economic activity. So what we've been through in uh, the, our years of expansion, we went from money being gold to money being gold and silver to money being uh, promissory notes backed by gold to being promissory notes backed by faith and then virtual representations of promissory notes backed by faith, uh, promises to repay promissory notes backed by faith. And people tend to think that the money supply is controlled by, by governments or central banks. That, that really is a, a misconception. A lot of this process of monetary expansion has absolutely nothing to do with central banks or, or government creation of money. Even under a gold standard, which we had in the, in the 1920s, we could still have a monetary expansion, and we did. The Roaring Twenties, the bubble of the Roaring Twenties, was based on a huge expansion of what is effectively a shadow banking system, an expansion of credit. And that's exactly what we've done again on a very much larger scale this time. So we've expanded the effective money supply by creating absolutely gargantuan amounts of credit. So, of course, governments have been creating credit money, but there's so much more to credit creation than what governments have been doing. So much of it exists outside of that official system through the creation of credit. Anytime someone is offering credit 
to another person, they're creating what is perceived to be value out of thin air because you can take that credit, you can go and buy something real with it. But in the process, you're creating an enormous amount of debt. What we've done is we've created a situation now where some 99% of the money supply is credit, is an enormous pile of human promises to repay. Promises to repay have value only so long as we believe the promise. As soon as that promise is no longer credible and those promises are, are start to be broken, the value of those promises disappears and all of a sudden we've crashed the money supply because now we're down to only the very small amount of physical currency in the system or and gold and silver and things like that. So what we've had is an enormous bubble of credit creation and what we're on the verge of is seeing that absolutely collapse as the value of promises to repay collapses. And that's really the heart of the, the, the first limit that we're going to be facing. As you say, you've been talking about a massive deflationary episode in the future. This goes pretty much against the grain of what a lot of peak oilers expect when they expect a hyperinflationary episode. The idea here being that there's all this money that is being created by banks and governments. And once there is a systemic crisis, instead of, say, this $100 trillion of money representing 100 trillion objects, say, that the economy generates, the lack of oil, electricity or other essential resources caused by peak oil will mean maybe only 20 trillion objects get created. So then we've got all this extra money chasing these fewer goods. You think this is wrong and expect a hyper deflation what how is this going to occur well essentially if you look at all that money that you're talking about how much of it has any basis in physical reality whatsoever almost none of it anything that is entirely virtual can go poof and disappear extremely quickly because it was never actually there in the first place that's exactly what happens to credit money and that's really at the heart of why we're facing deflation and not hyperinflation. So let, let me see if I have this straight so I can explain for the listeners. Most money is credit money, which is created when I go into the bank and get a loan. When I get my loan, they deposit by typing a few buttons on a keyboard, say £10,000 in my account. And on the other side of the book, they have Tom owes this bank £10,000 at 5% interest, say. This money that's being created is based on my ability to earn some money in the future to pay them back. Well, that money was lent into existence from thin air, and then they hope you can pay them back. For a long time, part of the, the heart of the problem was that banks didn't take that risk on their own books. So if banks have to take the risk of whether Tom will pay them back on their own books, then they put a fair amount of effort into making sure that Tom can pay them back. But what happens if a bank can sell the risk of, of a loan being repaid onto investors in Wall Street through, say, mortgage-backed securities? That's exactly what happened. The process of securitization meant that banks did not have to carry the risk of default on their own books. They were able to sell that risk to someone else. They got paid a fee for organizing loans up front, and then they didn't have to care if that loan could ever be repaid. So there was an enormous amount of money lent into existence on the flimsiest of pretexts. This was a license to print money on behalf of the banking system, 
whether or not that that loan could ever be repaid was irrelevant to the banks. The the investors who were buying the the securities were the ones who were in line to take the losses. One of the issues that we're going to be moving into in the future, now that securitization is is breaking down, banks are going to be an awful lot pickier about who they lend to, which constrains the development of credit because they're not going to lend money if the risk falls on them if you can't repay them. So credit standards are tightening all over the world. And that's a big part of deflation because when you can't keep a credit Ponzi scheme growing, it's going to collapse. And already we're seeing credit standards tighten. The amount of credit money in circulation is disappearing already. And this, this is deflation already. It's not something we're talking about as being in the future. It's happening right now. Let's say we have this massive kind of systemic peak oil crisis. People aren't able to pay back their loans and people get worried about the state of the banks and they start to withdraw cash from the banks. And after a certain stage, the banks go bankrupt and all the money that was in that system basically disappears in a puff of smoke. So the only money that's kind of left in the economic system is those that have been lucky enough to have hard cash out. Is that that's the core of your hyperdeflation? Well, that's basically what we can expect to happen, that we're going to see the destruction of the supposed value of credit money, of virtual money, virtual representations of value, because their value is so very, very ephemeral. And that really is going to leave the only money in circulation being actual cash. If you look at what's happening in Greece at the moment, people are trying to come up with local currencies to get around the fact that nobody's got any euros. And there's there's very little in the way of credit money available in Greece now. Or you look look at Cyprus, which in one week <coughs> went to being a cash-only economy because their banking system closed, nobody could get access to money anymore, there was no acceptance of credit, everything became cash only in the space of a week. And then people realized that they weren't actually going to be able to get money out of the system even when the banks reopened, because there, there are such tight limits to, uh, to withdrawals, it's really not enough to live on. So that's the kind of scenario we're looking at, Cyprus writ large in, in much bigger places in the world. Let me play the hyperinflationist devil's advocate for a minute. Now, as a hyperinflationist, I, I would say that the Great Depressions taught those in power how to use central banks to fend off such problems. And that it's different now that we, we don't need to worry about a hyperdeflation because the governments and the central banks around the world can just print up a whole load of fiat money and give it to the banks and the banks will all be made whole again. What's wrong with this kind of way of looking at the situation. They're not printing money, they're monetizing debt. They're trying to keep the credit Ponzi scheme going by creating more supposed value, more virtual value, and putting it into the banking system. But that's not getting out into the real economy at all, because it's not going through the magic money multipliers of fractional reserve banking and securitization. That money that's being put onto the ledgers of banks by the Federal Reserve is being put back on deposit with the Federal Reserve. So it's not getting out into the economy at all. And in fact, they've only monetized a trivial amount of the outstanding debt. It's probably 5% at most of the outstanding debt that has actually been monetized. If you look at the scale of the debt in the system globally, you look at the derivatives market, for instance, which is entirely excess claims to underlying real wealth, it's, it's entirely virtual, 
that completely outweighs any ability to monetize debt. And, and if you look at the way these things work in practice, it's not just the amount of money, but the rate that money circulates. Money can stop circulating in the economy incredibly quickly, even before money has actually been destroyed. You can see the amount of money in circulation fall dramatically as people stop spending merely because they're afraid of high unemployment. So you reduce the amount of money available as credit money disappears. You also drastically reduce the velocity of money, the rate at which money circulates in the economy, and that adds up to an enormous contraction of available money to sustain economic activity. So you create a self-fulfilling prophecy to the downside where you move into a state of economic depression. Are there other actions we can ex expect centralised power, the governments and central bankers, to, to try when we hit a systemic crisis? Well, I think we're going to see capital controls in, in a whole lot of places. Because the problem is money goes from where the fear is to where the fear is not. And large amounts of money moving from one place to another are very, very destabilizing both for the people, the countries where money is leaving and for the countries where money is, is arriving. And we're already starting to see the, the destabilizing effect of that dynamic. Money tries to get out of the European periphery. It's ending up in places like Switzerland. And then Switzerland is, is effectively paying a lot of money to intervene in the currency markets to try and keep the Swiss franc down against the euro. Because otherwise, the money that was arriving in Switzerland would push push up the value of the Swiss franc to the point where it would kill their, their exports. So there, there are huge destabilizing effects. And what governments are going to do is intervene in order to try and prevent money moving around. We're going to see tighter controls on what you can do with bank balances, how much you can withdraw at a time, how you can move money across borders, in what form, in what quantity. We're going to see constraints on being able to withdraw investments made in a foreign country so that governments will try and hang on to money that, that is within their country and not allow it to leave again. And all of this, of course, creates a great deal of fear in the capital markets because capital is used to being free. It's used to being able to go and exploit opportunities wherever it wants and then leave and exploit another one. When you start to tell big capital that it's going to get stuck, if, it, if it, it dips its toes into particular markets, it's going to be trapped there, then it won't dip its toes in those markets at all. And foreign direct investment will decrease very, very sharply. So we're, we're going to start to see governments intervene in ways that put up all kinds of barriers between different countries. So borders will, will get a lot, to, a lot tougher again. This whole borderless deregulated financial system that's been a huge part of enabling the credit ex expansion we've seen is going to break up and we're going to see something that looks a lot more like neo-mercantilism and that's going to lead to a collapse of investment and trade over the coming years. As logic stands you could meet a man who's from
deep underlying properties are there that make complex systems such as our socio-economic global capitalist system prone to collapse? Well, you get diminishing marginal returns to complexity over time. So uh, the, the standard reference on this is Joseph Tainter's work on the collapse of complex societies. So he would point out that as societies develop and become more complex, that complexity raises problems. And the way that these problems are always solved is with more complexity. But there comes a point where the gain in creating more complexity is actually outweighed by the cost of doing so as you get more and more problems thrown up by complexity and it gets harder and harder to solve any of them. So you get to the point where you simply cannot maintain the level of complexity. And of course, it's a huge energy argument as well, because it's energy that's the primary driver of expanding complexity in the first place. But in order to keep expanding complexity and keep solving the problems of complexity with more complexity, you have to have more and more energy. And when you can no longer do that, you can no longer maintain that level of complexity. So the energy is, is a key driver to the upside. But the interesting thing is that finance will be the key driver to the downside because changes in the world of finance happen so much more quickly than anything to do with supply or demand for, for energy. So we're going to see a period where finance is, is a major driver to the downside. And then when we try and recover in financial terms, it will be as a simpler society. So then we will see energy become the limiting factor again as we try and expand our complexity again until we hit that ceiling. Do you see a very rapid, fast collapse predicted by some where global trade stutters to a halt over a few weeks or months or a kind of a slow collapse where one by one countries land themselves in problems, say, like Egypt is having you today, where their oil production is dropping off a cliff and out of control demographics and balance of payment problems, etc., etc.? I think it's going to be a combination of the two, plus the third factor, which is periods of uh, intermittent recovery, sometimes sharply so. What happens in bear markets, in periods of financial contraction, is you get tremendous volatility. You get huge moves down that can unfold very quickly. You can have huge moves up that unfold very quickly. And you can have periods of relative stagnation, of sideways movement in a context of instability. And I think we're going to see all of the above. So if you look at the larger trend, I think it's going to be down for quite a long period of time, for probably several decades. But within that, it's not going to look like any kind of slow squeeze or any kind of you know, gradual diminution in capacity. I think we're going to look at very sharp periods of, of contraction that will lead to explosive situations in places like Egypt, but even more so when it starts to move into the developed countries at the economic center, in places where people have been wealthy for a long time and they're not used to, to having to, uh, to deal with poverty or, and they're, over, they're overstretched enormously in terms of the amount of leverage that they're carrying. Once that dynamic starts to hit in the countries of the center, then it's going to be incredibly destabilizing. And I think we're going to see something that looks a bit like a lightning bolt. So a sharp down and then an up, but not to the previous level, and then another down, but playing out over, over a long period of time. The depression I'm calling for, describing, is basically the first sharp down 
that we're going to see over the next several decades. So I would think that this is going to drive us into economic depression for perhaps 10 years or so, but it doesn't mean instability will be over at that point. I think any time you have a bubble the size of the one we've just lived through, the aftermath is going to, to play out over many, many decades. What has the nuclear disaster in Fukushima got to teach us about the nature of complex systems? Ah, yes, that's a very interesting one. Anything that requires a lot of complex things to go right at the same time is potentially a disaster when you're moving into periods of contraction. Because not only do you have less money and then you cut corners, but then people's attention is on other things. In, in the Soviet Union, when they had their contraction, nuclear operators were moonlighting as taxi drivers and selling whiskey and they, or vodka as a sideline because they weren't being paid for their job. And when you're running a nuclear plant, but you're not getting any sleep because you're trying to earn some money doing something else because your employer isn't paying you, then bad things can happen. The same thing can happen with airline safety, for instance. All sorts of things can go badly wrong when you cannot maintain the level of complexity necessary to make them go right. And so I'm tremendously worried about the nuclear industry in particular, um, thinking in terms of just what could actually go wrong, because it's not just that a whole lot of things have to go right. If those whole lot of things don't go right, the consequences are catastrophic. And that's, that's the real concern. There are so many ways in which things can go wrong in a complex system. The design basis accidents are not significant enough. They're not designing to cover things like human error or station blackout. That's a big risk that never gets adequately factored into design basis accidents. All of these things can go wrong. They can all go wrong at the same time. And then you end up with nuclear reactors either blowing up if they're RBMKs like Chernobyl or melting down if they're uh, boiling water reactors like Fukushima. But either way, there are tremendous consequences. And I really worry that we may end up leaving our grandchildren with no energy, no money, and perhaps not even the knowledge to decommission a nuclear reactor, which really means that there's tremendous potential for things to go horribly wrong. How do you see fraying state power in a near or, or post-collapse situation coping with such disasters? I'm not sure state power is going to fray yet. In fact, I think it's probably going to increase for a while. Because what tends to happen in a period of contraction is that it's ordinary people who lose all their freedom. So the middle class gets stuffed down into a giant proletariat and for a while all the power and control over the re remaining resources gets grabbed by political centers. So that really is a recipe for much greater central control and totalitarianism. So I'm fully expecting various parts of the world to end up uh, looking fascist, certainly including the US and the UK, which is uh, distressing to say the least. But I think that won't last forever. That central control will only last as long as the resources harnessed at the center can still be harnessed that way. And I think given the amount of instability that we're really looking at over the next while, the state's ability to harness power at the center will be fatally compromised, I think. So I think any, any episode of totalitarian control will have a limited lifespan because the ability to harness resources to an, allow any state to project power at a distance like that will itself be limited. 
So on top of all this cheeriness, I was wondering, Nicole, if you could tell us about your upcoming tour. <laughs> well, at the moment, I'm, I'm on the verge of heading to Ireland. It's not so much for a lecture tour. I'm more going to be attending conferences and teaching permaculture courses. So this is a, a little bit a different kind of uh, trip for me. But my previous tour was Australia and New Zealand. I, I did a, a two-month lecture tour in Australia and a one-month tour in, in New Zealand. After I finish the time in Ireland, I'm planning a tour in America in the fall. So I'll probably be uh, traveling all around the States like I did last time. And uh, then next year, I'll probably be back in Australia again. So I, I travel all the time and uh, very much enjoy meeting people and learning what making, makes different parts of the world tick. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today and explaining to us how you see the world ticking. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sonra and his orchestra, and Ella Fitzgerald singing, Give Me the Simple Life. You also heard, After the Gold Rush by Neil Young, the flaming lips reminding us that all we have is now, and you are now listening to Howlin' Wolf with Smokestack Lightning. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Omega.